Dress, the history of fashion, is a production of iHeartRadio. With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary and April Callahan. Welcome back, dress listeners, to part two of our discussion of the exhibition and accompanying Tour de Force catalog, get your hands on it now, um, (laughs) entitled Sporting Fashion, Outdoor Girls, 1800 to 1960. And originally slated to open in 2020, the exhibition is now on tour in the U.S. and will actually conclude its run at its home institution at the FITA Museum at the Fashion Institute of Design and Merchandising in Los Angeles in 2024. So today we welcome back the team responsible for this groundbreaking survey of sports women and the garments and accessories outdoor girls have worn for competition and play for more than 150 years, encompassing 700 objects and 10 years in the making. A round of applause for Kevin Jones, curator, and Christina Johnson, associate curator at the FIDM FITM Museum. Welcome back to Dress. We jump right back into our discussion with some of our favorite objects. And speaking of fantastic finds, I simply cannot pass up the opportunity to discuss another ensemble in the Sub-Zero style section with you. We've, of course, done an entire episode on driving fashion, so it might sound familiar to some of our dress listeners. There's this fantastic winter motoring ensemble from the 1910s. This era is one of both my and April's favorite periods of fashion history. This outfit is actually rather frightening. (laughs) We've discussed these motoring ensembles um, in the past. Male journalists in particular had a really hard time coming to terms with something that hid women from view and made them so incredibly, quote unquote, unattractive, despite the necessity of these garments that really covered a woman from head to toe. I'd love if you could describe this ensemble for our listeners and talk about the need for a quote-unquote auto face. Well, we love our 1910s winter motoring ensemble. This would have been worn by a lady driver in her new car. And it's this great leather coat. This is on page 202, 203 of the catalog. The leather coat is Russian in inspiration. It's Russian Cossack. And it has these great thick buttons and loops that are asymmetrical in groups of three, puff sleeves, wide cuffs of fur. She has her overboots on. She would have worn shoes or boots underneath these larger, warmer boots and this wonderful red fox fur hat and veil. But the auto face mm-hmm. is what really makes the impression. You know, the thing is, what's you know, we think of cars as being enclosed today. And they were not in the late, late, late 19th century and the early 20th century. You know, obviously it comes out of the carriage trade industry. Um, you know, these cars were, uh, the, the, a lot of the main body was wood. It was very heavy. It wasn't like the, like the plastics we have today or even lighter weight metals. And so they were heavy. And you got to think of the engines, you know, at the time. And it was kind of more like a lawnmower engine in these things. So they needed to lighten the, the cars as much as possible. And so they had, you know, 
adjustable canvas hoods that would come up, not fully enclosed that, that you see kind of post-World War I. So you, you were really exposed to the elements. Um, and also there was no, if it was sweltering outside, you were sweltering in your car. If it was freezing inside, you were freezing in your car. They didn't have the enclosed environment where you could then control kind of the, the temperature inside. So, you know, obviously this is a woman who was not in the Sahara Desert. I mean, she is like in the middle of Montana at 40 degree below weather. And I'm sure she's loving that she's got this massive coat on. Um, that is very heavy and it's because it is completely lined in sheepskin. Wow. I mean, the sleeves, the pockets, everything. Um, the thing that's kind of a tragedy about it is it was labeled and somebody cut the label out. So we just have this beautiful F and that's it. That's all we have with the label. So we don't know where this was from. We don't know who made it, but it's about 1914, 1915. And not only was she needed to protect her body from the cold, but also it would protect her fashionable garments that she would be wearing wherever she was driving because, you know, she is in an open car. So you're kicking up dust and dirt and debris and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, she'd take this coat off and then she'd have her nice, pristine outfit underneath. But you would also want to protect the, the, your face, your skin. You know, she's, she does have these huge gauntlet gloves on that, that, you know, protect her hands. And she's got the scarf on to help hold the hat on, but also to protect her hair, keep it clean and to give her a little bit more warmth there. And just this auto face, it was just another one of those many, many patented fashion elements that people were trying to invent that they hoped would catch on that would serve a purpose. And most of them went by the wayside. They were not practical or whatever, but I was able to find the patent for the auto face. And on the inside, it has the numbers and, it, and it, how, even how much these things cost. And it was this kind of linen and it was called cravenetted linen. And I, I could never find what that word meant, whatever this processes that they put the linen through that was supposedly to help block blizzard winds and so forth from getting through you know to your complexion and it's fitted with these with these goggles that have glass insets and it was it has a nose flap and this mouth guard and it kind of just looks like something a serial killer would wear yeah it kind of does you know our process <laughs> of dressing for photography for this project uh, carolyn jamerson really helped us with that and so she would test dress pieces to see uh, what needed to be padded out more if we were happy with the original selection of accessories uh, that we were intending to use. And I guess she test dressed this with the auto face one night, but she positioned it so it would be the first thing you saw as you entered our storage facility, as you opened the door. <laughs> the so on. I flipped the lights on and I, I did scream. That was my screaming moment because it is a statement. <laughs> it's a bit scary when you first look at it. Yeah. <laughs> And also this, this, this poor code and poor Carolyn, seriously. So she test dressed it, as Christina just mentioned, but when we actually then dressed it for photography, I had to dress it because whatever, and this, the coat was frozen, you know, for bug, you know, pest infestation and all that. And it was, it was vacuumed inside and out, but poor Carolyn, there is something probably in the sheepskin that she became horribly allergic to wow. and could never be around it. So I had to dress it for photography because she, she's like, I'm never going near that coat again. Yeah. You do need to be careful with some of these furs and leathers. Yeah. 
Speaking of furs and leathers, um, I'm hoping that we can talk about some of the profiles that you include in the book in the different sections, particularly those in this next section, which is called Wheels and Wings. The aviatrix Hazel Ying Lee and also the motorcyclist Bessie Stringfield, there's a little bit of leather in there as well, probably some sheepskin in their ensembles. But I I really love this because in many of your sections, not only are the ensembles themselves featured, you know, via your photography, but you've also included these short biographies on specific badass sportswomen. And it was just so cool to learn about the individuals themselves that are really pushing women's sports forward at this time. Can you tell us a little bit about your decision to include these profiles? Because they really are just so intriguing and fabulous. And would you also maybe tell us a little bit about Hazel and Bessie specifically? Well, the women in focus, that was Kevin's idea. And I have a secret. Kevin gets his best ideas when he's brushing his teeth or so so he says. (laughs) It's true. In the morning, I'm brushing my teeth. I was like, Hey, there's an idea. Whereas I tend to get my ideas when I'm driving. So I pull over and I write them down. I stay safe. Anyway, he came into the office after brushing his teeth one morning and said, I have this this idea. We need to do um, women in focus. We need to do this section of the catalog that that highlights women from diverse backgrounds, different ages, different body types, real sports women over this period that we're covering, because we don't want to just look at these imaginary, you know, ideal mannequins. So we started looking for females where we could find great images, fashion forward images. And you have to realize that it was really difficult to choose women for this. Also, there are a lot of anonymous sportswomen who will never be remembered because throughout history, as we know, females have not been deemed in many cases important enough to record. So we were limited in some ways. Anyway, Hazel Ying Lee was someone who really appealed to us because there was this dynamic image of her that is reproduced in the catalog. And she was a pilot. She was born in 1912 in Portland, Oregon, and her parents were Chinese immigrants. And the image we chose of her, she's standing against a plane. She has a wonderful leather skull cap on, goggles, a knit top, a vest, jodhpurs, these great tall boots. And she was interested in flying from a, from a very young age. We have oral histories from her sister, Frances Tung, and she said that Hazel loved being outdoors. She loved flying. And Hazel joined a flying class uh, when she was very young, and she graduated from that. She became a professional pilot. She wanted to volunteer for the Chinese Air Force uh, in the 30s, but unfortunately, they did not accept females. So she flew for a commercial airline in China for a few years. And then during World War II, the United States needed pilots based in the United States to fly new aircraft from construction lines to the different airports. So they started advertising for women to come and help them. And ultimately, a thousand women were accepted into the Women Air Force Service Pilots Group, which was called WASP. And they flew these new planes. They made $250 a month, which was $50 less than men doing the same job. So she did this for about a year. Sadly, 38 women lost their lives doing this because, as I mentioned, they were new planes that had never been flown before. And on Thanksgiving of 1943, Hazel sadly lost her life when she um, 
got into an accident in Montana. She was the last wasp to die. She was denied military funeral rights because these women, although it was a program overseen by the military, they were civilians. So it wasn't until 2009 that the group was given a congressional gold medal for their service. And if anyone is interested in Hazel Ying Lee, there's this wonderful documentary about her called A Brief Flight. And we're also lucky that many of her letters and images are part of the Museum of the Chinese in New York City. Yeah. And, and that image of her, I mean, she is exactly what you think of when you think of the fashionable aviatrix, like head to toe. We realized that just about everyone would know Amelia Earhart. And right. it was time to expand our understanding of these pilots and broaden mm-hmm. that group. Right. I also love that she's smoking a cigarette. I know. <laughs> right? Yeah. Next to her canvas plane, biplane, <laughs> right? So, you know, I, I had thought, how can you talk about women, women's sportswear, and not talk about women who wore the sportswear? You know, so that's another reason to include these women in focus. And originally, when we were going to have the six chapters, we were going to have 12 women, but we expanded it to the eight chapters and now 16 women because we have two per chapter. We have one woman in right in the center of whatever the chapter is. And then we wanted to end every chapter with one of these women in focus because the point is the women and what they were able to accomplish, whether it was walking or whether it was, you know, being a military, even though that wasn't her level, unfortunately, military pilot, um, such as, as Hazel. And our cover image is our 1930s motorcycling ensemble. And that outfit we put together, it was, it started when I found the really rare black leather motorcycling jodhpurs, thank you very much, that are scooped down very low at the abdomen and are very high in the back. Because of course, how are you positioned on a motorcycle? You're leaning over. Yeah. You don't want to have all this leather crunching down on your abdomen. Plus, you know, you're, you're, you're faced forward. So you don't want whatever you might have tucked in to pull out. So, I mean, so much thought was, was put into these types of, of garments and they were being worked out by the women who were actually physically t- undertaking whatever the, the, the sport was in this instance, my influence for, for pulling that whole outfit together was, was Bessie Stringfield. And she was really an amazing singular woman who just absolutely her entire life was the motorcycle. It's like she was, I swear she was born on a motorcycle. I mean, it was just incredible. And she, she, was, a, she was difficult to research because, you know, Christina and I are very much into as much primary source material as possible for this entire project. That's why we have quotes throughout it. We want the eras to speak for themselves, not we just trying to interpret an era. And it's the same thing to bring out the biographies um, of, of the women. And Bessie was born in North Carolina in 1911. And she just was fascinated by motorcycles because a man who lived above her, where her family lived, he had a motorcycle. And she only ever drove Harley Davidson's. That was her go-to motorcycle. And by the time she was 14, she had 
somehow managed to buy a, a motorcycle, much to her parents, especially her mother's chagrin. You know, <laughs> a, a, a lady just did not drive around on a motorcycle, you know, and, and motorcycle culture was not geared towards women at all. It was very, very masculine. There were not manufacturers for motorcycle gear for women. It really comes out of what we think of as the motorcycle attire with World War One and men wearing uh, leather jackets, which they continued to wear after the war, motorcycling, boots. Uh, you know, you think of motorcycle boots today and we kind of have this vision. Well, it wasn't like that at all for women. So the things that are recorded early on are you mixed and matched, as we talked about, these separates, and you made it work for wherever you were. You would have a blouse on. You know, if it was cool or cold outside, you would put on a cardigan. And so we have our mannequin wearing the mohair uh, cardigan there. The image of Bessie that I found and absolutely fell in love with was her outside of this building. And we don't know where she is. We don't know exactly when it was taken. We don't know who took the photo, but you can see the photographer's head, the shadow right there. We don't know if it was a man or a woman, but here is this incredibly confident woman who knows everything about the, the, the sport that she loves and is just wrote totally in this relaxed posed on top of her Harley Davidson, smiling broadly because she's having the time of her life. Mm -hmm. And you can see everything that she's wearing from the, the, her, her motorcycle boots are actually just dressage boots. You think riding a horse. She's got her jodhpurs on. She has her blouse on. She has her skull cap on, which is taking coming out of race car driving and then piloting and with the goggles. Because once again, you've got to protect your eyes. You've got to protect your hair. You've got to protect yourself when you're out because it's just kicking up all the dust. You're completely exposed. But the other thing that she's got on that I found fascinating is a kidney belt. Because these huge piece. motorcycles had no suspension at that time. I mean, you were on it and you were literally being shaken to death. And that could really damage your inner. So almost like a, um, uh, somebody who lifts really super heavy weights today and all the strain on the body, they have to protect that middle portion. And so, you know, we styled that outfit completely because of Bessie. And Bessie started driving her, her motorcycle when she was very young. She was determined to drive in all 48 of the contiguous states, which she did, but she was doing this in the, the late 1920s and into the 1930s. You know, this is a time where you don't have an African-American woman independent driving around the country doing whatever she wants to do because one thing for a woman it could be very dangerous and specifically when she was in the southern states at this time you know she is she's exposing herself but she's also doing this because it's a challenge it is something that she loves and she was not going to be stopped to do this and like Hazel working uh, with the government during World War II, Bessie became one of the few civilian motorcycle couriers in the United States along the Eastern Seaboard that she was um, couriering messages from government agencies that needed to get somewhere fast. 
And of course, she was on a motorcycle and she was fast and she did not need, need roads necessarily to get to where she was going. And because she had been all around those areas previous to World War II, she knew the roads to take. She knew how to uh, navigate around difficult terrain, but also difficult areas where there would be segregation, where she may not be able to go or somebody else may not be able to go comfortably. This is a movie in the making, I'm just saying. She, we've talked about this. There, there's got to be somebody out there writing her screenplay now. And the same thing with Hazel. Mm-hmm. You know, any one of these women deserves to have a movie uh, made about them. And, you know, once the war was over into the 50s, you know, she's got to earn a living. She she worked with carnival troops and kind of the death spirals where seriously you're, you're like cycling with other people inside this metal cage defying gravity. And she she later in her life settled in Florida. She worked as a nurse uh, practitioner for a while. She was doing domestic work. And she she passed away in 1993 in Florida, in Apalaka, as a great beloved figure in that community. And everybody knew her. And she would organize bike parades and just do anything that she could to promote bike culture. And of course, by the time you get to the 1980s and the early 1990s, you know, women are a major part of the bike culture that is now all over the United States and even in Europe. And so she was a major person to champion that. And she was honored by the Motor Maids of America, by the American Motorcyclist Association, the AMA. And they actually named her to their Hall of Fame. Uh, it was done posthumously, unfortunately. I wish she could have, you know, had those honors in her day. But, you know, these, so many of the women in our Women in Focus were the pioneers of aspects of sports and women's participation that, that we just take for granted today and that these women were seriously punching through a lot of societal glass ceilings. We meet so many incredible women in these sections. This is one of my favorite parts. There's Alta Weiss, who was a a female pitcher for all-male baseball teams in like 1906, 1907. And then there's the bodybuilder, Abby Stockton, who's an advocate for women's bodybuilding in the 1940s. She opens a women's gym, only gym in 1947. So, so many incredible women who, you know, they defy gendered stereotypes and tropes, and so does the very clothing um, they put on their bodies. So such an incredible section of this catalog. So your section of the exhibition, Having a Ball, covers sporting ensembles for croquet, tennis, and golf, among other activities. You pair an advertisement for May's corsets for golfing from around 1895 with a quote from a book on golf which was published in 1890, in which the author writes, we venture to suggest 70 or 80 yards as the average limit of a drive advisedly. Not because we doubt a lady's power to make a longer drive, but because that cannot well be done without raising the club above the shoulder. The postures and gestures requisite for full swing are not particularly graceful when the play is clad in female dress. End quote. And the lady golfer illustrated in this advertisement is wearing a tam shanter hat. Her skirts have been shortened for sport and hit about six inches above the ankle. Her fabulous red sweater features the enormous red gigo sleeves. Oh, so fashionable in the 1890s. And then she has this bodice and the bodice of her sweater is quite tight. She's very clearly corseted. Will you talk to us about corseting for sport during the 19th century? 
it does not matter what you were doing if you were a woman in the 19th century in the earliest part of the 20th century that you know corsets were an everyday part of your life it's not something that you just wore occasionally or for an evening outfit and you know really pulled your waist in tightly corsets were not for just creating a small waist they were actually a foundation of all of your other garments that you were wearing whether it was a a day dress a ball dress or a sport garment and you know everybody wore the the corset the women it was it was from the very wealthy woman who lived in the mansion all the way down to her maid a scullery maid wearing a corset that would actually really help protect her back you know carrying heavy pots and and lifting and and doing that really manual labor so you know this idea that corsets and women were just around fainting all the time is is really not at all correct and it's proven because, you know, women were wearing corsets while participating in their sporting activities. It's just that the corsets were adjusted for whatever it is that they needed. Um, you know, we talked a little bit about the knit corsets with the riding ensemble. And we also have the, the Jaeger knit corset with the cycling outfit, you know, and those would be much more expandable, much more movable. But even corsets that were made of coutille, which was a type of, of, of cotton, a polished cotton or any other kinds of materials, heavy duty like wool broadcloths and things, they were often cut high up on the hip. Because that would give your legs more um, uh, ability to move in cycling or to move in a, on, on, on a horse in a way that was necessary. So, again, corsets were not the enemies of the state. <laughs> they were not, you know, thrown aside just because you were a sport woman at, at, at the time. They were integrated into your life because they were a normal part of life for women at that time. We have fetishize these women in their corsets. We have come up with all sorts of things that don't make sense that they had, you know, 14 or 17 inch waist and everybody was a tight lacer. All of these are just kind of fantasies that I think the movies have played up a lot um, that don't have much to do with the reality that these women were living in. Mm-hmm. And we've had um, Emma McClendon um, on the show, the, our very, very first season and her incredible exhibition, Fashion and Physique. Just even though the show didn't focus specifically on corsetry, the history of corsetry, just by the nature of what she was doing, it was kind of like this undercurrent of the history of corsetry. And it's so fascinating to watch the silhouettes shift over time because even within themselves as an undergarment, there is a fashion to them and and they are shaping in the fashionable body. So the shapes of them actually do change. And then you do have some corsets that were designed and intended expressly for health, such as those designed by Gustav Jaeger. And we have an example of that in the catalog. Um, it was thought to be healthful to have wool next to the skin with some light boning. So these undergarments really were designed in part to support an active lifestyle. And there were corsets that had buttons all over them so that you buttoned on aspects of your sport dress because that evened the weight of the dress around the body instead of like it just pulling from the shoulders or just being constricted to the waist. So, you know, there was a lot of thought that was being put into it, a lot of experimentation, a lot of, again, the patents that were being created um, to try to figure out, you know, what was the best for whatever the sport was and what was necessary 
necessary, what was needed, what would support the back or what would support the bust line. You know, corsets were, were designed to, to give that fashionable silhouette, to give a foundation for your garment, but also to support the bust from underneath, not from the shoulders pulling up the way a bra does today. And while we're speaking about adapting clothing to the wearer's body and their need to move in these garments, we have to talk about Serena Williams. And Serena wrote a really lovely forward to the exhibition catalog, which touches on gender, race, and women's appearance in the public sphere of sport. This was an excellent way to start the catalog, by the way. It was such a treat to open and see Serena as one of the first women we meet in this uh, catalog. So Serena herself has, of course, directly challenged deeply rooted gender dress codes that have long defined her chosen sport, tennis. In 2018, Serena now famously wore a black body-forming catsuit to the French Open, and within days, it was banned from the event, causing a firestorm of backlash. (laughs) Serena references this catsuit controversy, actually, in her forward, and she says, quote, I felt empowered wearing it, like a warrior on the court. Of course, I turned heads. I always have. I have pushed the boundaries of what is acceptable for women to do, to be, and to wear in sport. It is moving to realize what I owe the female athletes who came before me, who fought to tear down the barriers built to isolate them from the male sporting sphere. I stand on their shoulders, end quote. Can you speak about the significance of sporting fashion to women's empowerment historically as represented through this exhibition, but also today? Serena, of course, is one of the greatest sports stars of all time, hands down. She was an apt choice to write the forward to this catalog in more ways than one. Yeah, and a badass writer, too. I was like, is there anything that she can't do? Come on. Right. (laughs) You know, with... Early on, we were talking about, you know, it'd be great to find a sport figure who might be interested in this project. And, you know, it is difficult to get people interested in something when they don't know what it's going to be like in the end. It's easy now to kind of see, yeah, this turned out to be a great project. But, you know, it's, it's that kind of leap of faith aspect. And we were, we were throwing around ideas. And honest to God, Serena was really at the top. Just because she is extraordinary in her chosen sport, she is interested in fashion. I mean, there was like this perfect connection, but also she would challenge not only the sport itself, but also what would be allowed to be worn in her chosen sport. You know, it's no longer just the little white short mini dress, you know, on, on, on the court anymore. So we, we, we really wanted to approach her and Kirsten with AFA, uh, it was she who did a lot of the research to, to find that contact. And when we were able to talk with, you know, the, the, the whole group around Serena about this project, they all really fell in love with it and thought it was very worthwhile. And we were very happy that Serena took it as, yeah, this is something um, timely to talk about, but also she liked our approach because it was fashion oriented in a way that had not been done before. So we were all geared up to open this exhibition in May, but the pandemic happened and it was postponed. We hope to have the exhibition here in 2024. Mm -hmm. But for that May date, Kevin had succeeded in acquiring that same black cat suit on loan for the opening. And we were going to make um, a custom mannequin. It was going to be amazing. So hopefully when it comes back to LA, we'll have that cat suit. And it was to open the exhibition. It would be the first thing that you, when you walked in the door, there was Serena right there in front of you. 
you know, Serena in that forward, she mentions that she has learned to take take charge of the conversation about her physical appearance on her own terms. And she's accomplished this in part by having empowering fashion choices on the court and off. And this is really no different from the outdoor girls whom we highlight in our project. And I can speak to the 1930s motorcycling ensemble, which is our cover girl. I know Kevin has gone into this a little bit, but you know, describing the look, this mannequin, um, if we think of her as a real woman, she's chosen bright colors that possibly express her personality. She's wearing menswear, which was an amazing choice. You know, she's expressing self-determination, self-expression. And these clothing options, not only were they visually arresting, but they supported a really empowered physical presence to be able to ride astride. Speaking to post-1960, after our exhibition ends, speaking about the modern era, it was really 1972 with Title IX, the federal law mandating schools that received federal funds to provide equally in all educational opportunities for females and males. And we really see a difference in females participating in sports at that time. They had to have equal access to the playing fields. They had to have equal access to scholarship. And in part, this is why we have more females sports icons right now. If you look at today, you know, you have Naomi Osaka, you have the women's NBA, you have the U.S. women's soccer team. And not only are they known for their physical prowess, they're known for their appearance, their uniforms, their personal style. They also have lucrative contracts, and rightly so, with companies like Nike and Under Armour. And they also use their platforms and their physical appearance for messages. You know, for example, the U.S. women's soccer team, they've made it known that they are for um, equity in pay for female sports. Naomi Osaka, she has worn face masks on the court with the names of Black Americans killed by police brutality. So these empowered females are using their wardrobe to send really strong messages today. And it's such an important part of what we hope our project accomplishes with empowering women, even though we don't cover it, that I wanted to get it right. And it's another reason why we wanted to have a international sport figure from today yeah. as our complete opening of the entire catalog. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we could have had one of our women in focus, one of these historic women that could have been very strong, but because we end the catalog in 1960, and the main reason why we did that is because it's, remember, it's aspect of design. Everything that a sport woman wears, even today, had been designed by 1960. It is the textile technology from today that is now applied to those already designed elements that bring the sport uniform or um, even passive sportswear up to the present time. So, that's the reason for the cutting off of 1960, but we know that this project extends all the way to right now because we're dealing with a contemporary audience and especially contemporary young women who hopefully will see this project and feel, wow, I do have a history in whatever sport I'm interested in, but also that there are women today that just like the, the incredible women that, that Christina just mentioned that are pushing it forward because Every single woman in our project, whether she's from the 1820s or the 1920s, was the sport woman of her day. Mm -hmm. One of the things that we absolutely did not want to do in the project was to compare the, a woman from any time period to a future woman as if she didn't have it good enough. Mm 
But instead that it was that woman that her sisters in the future were looking back on to see like, wow, because this woman did this, I can do this today, 50 years later. That is still exactly contemporary in our time now. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's 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 why we we're, we're so grateful that Serena Williams uh, agreed to do the forward. And what she wrote is so important, not only for right now, but it still will be in 50 years. Yeah. And as she said, I stand on their shoulders. Right. Right. So we're coming a little bit near the end of our discussion today. And I want to talk about the final theme in the catalog and exhibition because it deals more or less with team sports. It does also include some other things like archery, boxing, fencing, and calisthenics, as is cheerleading also covered. I really loved those Harvard and Yale cheerleading uniforms. Those were just so charming. But my personal favorite uniform from this section is actually a basketball uniform. And it's from 1919. It's from a team in Texas. I had to sleuth that out from the back of the book and your little object chats. But um, it's this, it's a, a navy cotton sateen sleeveless jumpsuit. It has a V-neck and it has white trim at the neckline, around the arms, and also at the waist. And then there's a white stripe that extends down the sides of the legs of the jumpsuit, which are kind of like these blue sons and they end just below the knee. And then of course she has to have a number because it's her uniform. She has a large white zero applique to the center front of her bodice. And I just love this so much because the silhouette of the uniform itself is so obviously from the past. But there's something about this color combination and the white trim and her number that reads incredibly familiar to us today, that this is a sports uniform. Um, She's wearing stockings with her her little jumpsuit, and she's styled in these little lace-up sports boots that are authentic to the period. And you guys have even put her with a basketball from the era as well. So again, it's it's all these things that you managed to acquire. You know, you've acquired uh, period cricket gloves and shin guards and bats from the 1910s that we see in this section. And, you know, you, again, you just combed the planet for many of these objects. Can you tell us a little bit perhaps about one of the most surprising sources of an object in the show? Yes. And <laughs> and you, you mentioned it. I'm so glad you did because... It's the early 20th century cheerleaders that are Yale and Harvard ladies, then they're facing off each other. Those were really fun to put together. However, it was really, really challenging to find the sweaters because again, you know, those damn moths, but also, you know, how many have survived? And they were the generally the boyfriend sweaters uh, that the, that the women would wear up in the bleachers, cheering on, you know, the, the the teams. And I really wanted to find the sweaters with turtlenecks because that's even more difficult to find. So what I did is I found this really fabulous photo of this guy wearing, and we don't know who he is. I don't know who took the photo. I don't know when it's from. It's turn of the turn of the twentieth century, and. Uh, and he's wearing his Yale turtleneck with the Y and everything. And so I took that photo and had it turned into an advertisement looking for the sweater and posted it in the Yale alumni newsletter. 
that went out to 72,000 Yale alumni. And we got some calls. Uh, People had some sweaters and things, but none of them were right. And then I got a call from our donor and his father had gone to Yale and he had kept three of these sweaters and they allowed us to choose one of them. And then the other two were donated to Yale. And so it was crazy that this kind of idea that I had brushing my teeth um, <laughs> to, to do this, this, hey, let's do an advertisement in the Yale alumni newsletter worked. And we were able to find this incredibly rare sweater. And the thing is, it was worn by Charles Campbell, and he was the head of the track and field team for Yale and from 1904 to 1909. And so it was exactly the time period that we needed. And even if you flip up underneath, his initials are embroidered underneath. Aww. So, so we had the sweater. We had actually done the photography shoot. And our donor sent me a letter because he found a photograph of Charles Campbell wearing the sweater at a track meet which is incredibly rare to find. But what was even spookier is like Charles was what, maybe 21 at the time. He and I look exactly alike. (laughs) It was like my twin brother. It was really, really spooky. So that that, that was just so amazing to me. We acquired another ensemble, I kid you not, through the Antiques Roadshow. We were thinking about what sports- You were. Yeah, I was. I was thinking about what sports we should end this project with. And I wanted sports that were honestly just really aggressive, like aggressive and forceful and strong sports to represent females in the mid 20th century. And one of my yoga teachers is really into the roller derby scene. And I knew that this was a really popular sport in the 40s and 50s. It was a sport that was described as a mix between a race wrestling and a general disturbance of the peace. And so I said, Kevin, we have got to get a roller, a roller derby ensemble. He's like, good luck I'm riding like, it. I, I don't even know luck. what they look like. I don't, no idea. Well, Never seen one. Our supporter, Stephen Porterfield comes into play again, and he is on the Antiques Roadshow and he appraises uh, costume and textiles for people. And he had a couple come in with a family members, their mothers, their yeah. mother's vintage roller derby ensemble. And it's this, it's in the book. It's great. It's this uh, green and white knit top with RRR, which we learned stands for Reading Roller Racers, with this great four leaf clover. Of Reading, Pennsylvania. Of Reading, Pennsylvania. Some little green shorts with padding, protective padding. And, you know, he did the appraisal, all of this, but it didn't make it on television because the producers didn't think that women's sportswear was interesting or important enough. So this poor couple asked Stephen, you know, what should we do with this? We don't want it anymore. We want. We wanted to go somewhere. He said, well, if you're, if you're truly interested in donating it, donating it to a nonprofit institution, I know uh, this curatorial team, they're working on a sportswear project. Here's their information. So not only did we acquire the top in shorts, but there are also photographs of Betty Fisher in her uniform on the rink posed. We have her medals. We have some of her ephemera. So guess what? I got my roller derby ensemble. You did. It was incredible. <laughs> I mean, because we were going to, we wanted to do roller skating, roller something rather, because, you know, that's really popular in the, in the 20th century, but, you know, and yeah, roller derby, but we had never seen, I still have never seen another surviving complete roller derby outfit anywhere. And it's worn. It's very worn. There's holes. It's stretched because she really did exert herself with yeah. her teammates. So that's also fun to see the it signs, is. the signs of wear. Yeah. Getting into that general disturbance of the piece. 
That's yeah, right. That's right. Yep. <laughs> so for the exhibition, there are sections that we've put together, three of them that are period film footage going back to the 1890s. And one of the, the most fun of the footage is a roller derby race. And I tell you, these women are just like bashing each other to smithereens. It was incredibly, incredibly aggressive. It's, it's made a comeback here in Brooklyn as of years of late, just saying. <laughs> nice. What I love so much about so many pieces in the exhibition is that they come with provenance. You know who wore them. You know when they wore them. And in many cases, as you're talking about, they are worn. I mean, these are just not pieces that museums typically collect, but it's they're pieces that so many of us can relate to because these are ordinary women doing extraordinary things. It's just wonderful. So the exhibition was originally intended to open at FITM, as you have noted in 2020, but of course the pandemic happened and instead its first debut is one of the locales that was already promised to as a traveling exhibition. So it's going to debut at other institutions. Um, can you tell us a little bit about where it is to be seen soon and also what people can expect to see in the exhibition in the near future? Yes, we have six venues booked for the next uh, three years. As you mentioned, the Frick, it's then going to the Dixon Gallery in Tennessee. In 2023, it'll be at the Figgy in Iowa, the Munson Williams Proctor in New York, and then in 2024, the Taft Museum in Ohio and the Comer in Florida. And you'll see 65 of our outdoor girls, as well as a number of accessories and framed prints. And many of these institutions are doing their own programming, mm -hmm. community-based programs, Programming and inviting local sportswomen there. So there's going to be something different at every venue. And of course, we'll keep up with that on our FITA Museum's social media. And I just want to point out that is the Frick in Pennsylvania, correct? In Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. That's, That's correct. correct. Yes, yes, yes. Mm -hmm. So Christina, Kevin, we cannot congratulate you enough on this truly monumental work that you have done for this exhibition. When we first met with you about it in the you know, so-called before times of January 2020, <laughs> you showed us a mock-up of the exhibition catalog. And I still remember sitting in the office and looking at it and just being like, oh, wow, <laughs> April and I left. And, you know, we pretty much agreed that this show was set to be the defining exhibition on women's sportswear. No one has attempted to do what you have so patiently and carefully crafted over 10 years, not only with the garments themselves, but also the incredible amount of research and obviously love for what you do that went into this project. Um, this is truly a once in a lifetime exhibition dress listeners. So get out there and see it. And if you cannot, of course, definitely get your hands on a copy of this exhibition catalog. It is incredible. So before you go, where can people learn more about the show and also the FITA Museum? Uh, you can always go online, fitamuseum.org. And, you know, we're here in Los Angeles and we have a wonderful social media manager, Joanna Abajaudi, and she's Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. And we are posting uh, aspects of the show. It will be opening, as Christina mentioned, in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania on July 3rd of this year. And then we'll be traveling for three years before it finally lands as the grand finale here at the Fitta Museum in the summer of 2024, which should coincide nicely with the Paris Olympics. Uh, so, um, you know, and you can always contact us through our the, the website. Uh, if you have any questions for Christina or me, uh, we're happy to, to answer. 
and potentially donate some things, right? Oh, always. Yes. <laughs> right. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you both so much for being incredibly generous with your time. Thank you, April. And thank you, Cassidy. Thank, thank you. you so much. Thank you. This has been great. Dress listeners, we cannot say this enough. Go out and pick up this incredible catalog. It is so wonderful. You will not be disappointed. April, when you and I saw it, uh, gosh, it was a year and a half ago, we had this whole discussion that this catalog was going to be this definitive tome on the subject of women's sportswear in years to come. And it is so much so that we actually got ahead of ourselves over the past year and we started recommending it to some of our listeners saying like, look out for this book. And that includes listener Marlene Van Deken who wrote to us at the time when she wrote to us, she was a costume design student in her final year. She did this incredible tailoring project where she recreated historic garments and she actually recreated like down to the fabric that she dyed to match this incredible bicycling ensemble. It's two pieces. Um, It's from the 1890s. So it has those huge Gigo sleeves and it is in the most bright and beautiful and joyful colors. It's like lime green, like pink. It has covered in chrysanthemums. And she sent us all these wonderful photographs of her wearing it. She even like has the hat that you know, how Christina and Kevin styled it, April, and the tie and the matching shirt. It was just incredible. And then she also recreated for this same project, this lime green suit, macaroni suit from the 18th century. So Marlena, thanks for bringing us so much joy. It's so fun to hear from you guys. Yes, yes, yes. And well, Marlene recreated the bicycling suit from the 1890s. That's the original is actually in the Fitum collection and it's in the catalog. The macaroni suit that she recreated is actually a LACMA piece. So you can head over to LACMA's website if you want to check it out. It's amazing. The colors of it and Marlene recreated this like almost neon green and kind of a peachy pink colorway, uh, which you know, dating to the 18th century, I'm like, how is this even possible? But um, <laughs> it's so spectacular. I actually do show images of this macaroni suit when I teach the 18th century. So, uh, Marlene, obviously, color us both impressed um, <laughs> because also, apparently, we're just not done with puns in these episodes. Before we go, I do want to mention a quote included in the catalog, which I really loved and we haven't had time to mention yet, because in 1910, one Emmett Dunn Angel proclaimed, quote, the children of the future will be thankful that the mothers of today lived in an athletic age. So may you consider the fact that you owe much of your comfort to the fearless sportswomen of your next time you get dressed. I think that does it for us this week. Yes, and of course, Sporting Fashion Outdoor Girls 1800 to 1960 is currently on view at the Frick Pittsburgh through September 26, 2021, before it goes on to travel to other venues Kevin and Christina mentioned in this episode. And if you have a chance to check out the show in person, we'd love to hear from you about your favorite ensembles, although it's really, really hard to pick. I know. And if if you'd like to write to us, you can do so at dress at iheartmedia.com or of course, DM us on Instagram at dress underscore podcast. Podcast, which is where we post images to accompany each week's episode. Thank you, as always, to our producers, Casey Pagram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio that makes the show possible each week. We will catch you soon.
Dressed, the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.